Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is Aaron, who's still here. We're still missing Drew. He's out on his travels out in the wild world, uh, and I'm sure he'll uh, be back at some point. I'm hoping so. Aaron, say hi. Greetings and salutations, cupboard dwellers. Aha. What have you been up to this week? Uh, so this week I've been watching Kingfisher on the river near me, which has been fantastic. I spent quite a bit of time watching him. Um, very beautiful. Uh, and it made me think that um, I wouldn't mind it, I wouldn't mind David David Silver perhaps uh, doing the Spinosaur in Kingfisher <laughs> colours. I think that would be pretty cool. Oh, I can hear... I feel a great disturbance in the force as all the Spinosaurid fanboys get angry at me for saying it's a fish eater. But there we go. Um, the um, Spinosaurus Jurassic Park fanboys, not actual Spinosaurus fanboys like Gareth. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on. Uh, also, there's a big fish in the river that I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago. I've actually find, found where he hangs out. And I think he gets quite a bit of food there because he's getting he's getting big there. But uh, where he where he is, he kind of he's kind of marked out a nice clean spot because he's pushed all the because he just stays in the same place, just swimming in place. And the act the action of mobilizing his tail has cleared off all the silt and the uh, and the mud from where he where he kind of hangs out. Hmm. Do we know what kind of fish? Yeah, I think he's brown trout. Ah, very nice. Well, you know what they say: there's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish. That will be a theme for this week. Um, so <laughs> I've not done a huge amount, although I did do one fun thing today. Actually, it was it was quite nice. I've been clearing up after sorting out sorting out the garden from a couple of weeks ago, just clearing away rocks and and things like that, and putting them into the rockery, sorting out uh, borders and 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 just generally tidying the garden up whilst I had the chance. And covered a toad that had sort of covered itself up in amongst all of the um, bits of rubble. Uh, well, not so much rubble, but like the uh, the leftover bags from, uh, you know, moving all the soil and everything. So I've set him up in the uh, the rockery. So we've now got a, oh, a lovely little toad in our rockery. Lovely. Um, so Thank yeah, um, making little homes for toads, really. So that's all I've pretty much done. But we... I did forget to mention, actually, a little while ago. Again, it's something I mentioned on the podcast, I think, about a, a newt being in my cat's... Um, yeah, you did. Yeah, in its, in its water bowl. I think it was Tuesday. I uh, went up to a client of, of mine, spent some time with the dog, and in the dog's water bowl was a newt. Hmm. So yeah, I got I got him out, put him somewhere nice and damp, but uh, but shady and away from the cat and the dog. Yeah, very nice. Right. Well, we're going to be we're going to be quite a wet theme, I think, for this week's episode in a lot of ways. Certainly, our creature feature coming up. Uh, will be rather wet as it's an aquatic species. Um, but let's jump on into the news. It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news, and I'm going to start things off this week by talking about a fantastic article that just seemed to pop up out of nowhere, and if anything, um, was a Bit of a surprise, actually. I mean, I sent this to you as well, Aaron, to have a to look at, like we, mm. we normally do. Were you as surprised as I was uh, about the uh, the location of this particular animal? Uh, I was. I am always surprised. 
well, I better reveal what the animal is in itself. It's um, basically the article is from The Guardian and it's endangered species spotted pine martin spotted in London for the first time in more than a century. Now, for anyone who's not aware of what a pine martin is, uh, probably the most basic way to think of it is tree ferret would probably be a good way of describing it. Um, they're a species of, of mustelid, so in the same family as the ferret, the weasel, the otter, the badger. And pine martins specialize in living in the trees, hunting squirrels, uh, birds, pretty much anything that's high up in the, uh, the trees. But they're also quite good on the ground as well uh, and have been known to, uh, to take pretty much anything that they can get their jaws around. They're not massive, but they're also not exactly small. They're about the size of a very large ferret. And yeah, this one has been spotted in in and around london for the first time uh in more than a century and what's equally as surprising is this was not done as a monitoring task to try and see if pine martins were around london uh, it was actually on camera traps intended for hedgehog surveying done by uh, zsl so uh, london zoo they were doing a camera trap survey uh in the southwest of london uh, so they were doing uh, camera trap surveys in people's back gardens and this camera trap picture shows what is quite clearly a pine martin, which is utterly fantastic. And they were shocked, to say the least. If I'd, this is I'd a case, too. well, yeah, if this is a case, as the article states, the endangered mustelid was driven to extinction in England 100 years ago and was only sighted again for the very first time in the Shropshire Hills in 2015, remaining an extremely rare animal. So a little bit of background of where you will find pine martins as well. Um, they are increasing well this they're increasing their range actually but for a long time their only sort of real bastion of where you could find them was high up in the highlands uh in scotland where you know they, their populations remained there have been reintroduction plans that have gone on over the years and in fact there have been one or two of them that have allowed them to spread even further and some into shropshire uh wales as well has now got some living in and around snowdonia um, and down into West Wales as well. So their numbers are increasing there. There's talk even of reintroducing them onto Exmoor and to Dartmoor. Um, they're, they're actually setting that program up as we speak. So yeah, they are slowly on the increase and they're a fantastic species to have back in the environment. They're a predator and you would think instantly predator, oh, bad. But this is a predator that will control great squirrel numbers. That helps out wild bird populations. You would uh, you would think that the pine martins would be preying on them, uh, which they will. But gray squirrels also do a huge amount of damage to wild birds. They eat their eggs. They'll eat their chicks. So, yeah, it's great to see a native species coming back in these areas. Uh, one of the quotes that comes up is, as part of our ongoing hedgehog monitoring program, we deploy camera traps across woodland areas, says Kate Scott Gatty, uh, research assistant for ZSL and London Hog Watch, which I think is a brilliant name. Uh, in this area, we're usually set off by movement of common species, things like foxes, badgers. So you can imagine our surprise in seeing a pine martin, a, sp a species usually only glimpsed in Scotland or in northern England. Pine martins are highly mobile animals, uh, but it's not known if the animal captured uh, on the camera trap had made its way from the nearest known population in the new forest about 80 miles away to the west or it had been released possibly as part of an unofficial reintroduction effort now both of us have come across things like that where people have unofficially uh, reintroduced native species uh, into some of these but yeah areas. i can i can think of one very cool one that's not that far away 
<laughs> yeah. When it comes to things like that, it's not always the best thing in the world, but sometimes it, it can be in the sense that uh, they are cutting through some of the red tape, but there is a lot of planning that does need to go into these reintroductions to work with local communities. Part of the reason why the Pine Martin was essentially wiped out is because of persecution from chicken farmers um, and you know small livestock people thinking that they would take their small animals, which they will occasionally take the odd chicken. They'd much prefer to be you know eating uh, squirrels or things like that high up in a forest. So another one of these animals that um, man is very good at persecuting in this country. So this also ties the article also ties into research into Northern Ireland, which has been done quite a while now on their numbers because they have actually increased quite a bit. Um, it's shown that pine martens normally avoid busy urban areas, but there is plenty of food available available in London with grey squirrels, a particularly easy target. And I would imagine the ones in London are probably, well, not used to seeing any kind of predator other than maybe a cat. Uh, experts believe it's unlikely to have been targeting the hedgehogs in the woodland area, although pine martens have been recorded taking young hedgehogs. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine they'd have... Uh, that have bothered with that uh, at all. So it then quotes again that gamekeepers historically targeted the species because it, it devours game birds. This is what led to its extinction in England, uh, like I said earlier. Um, so it's another one that we have to thank grouse and all that sort of land of gentry shooting of birds and all that for their destruction. But now um, with a reintroduction, but now with a reduction in persecution, Pine martens were sighted again in Northumberland in 2018, and the animals were reintroduced to the Forest of Dean in 2019, and further reintroductions are being planned for Exmoor and Dartmoor, just like I said before. So it's it's now going to be monitored further, and they're, they're basically going to be watching these camera traps for any signs of the pine marten. It may have been just a one-off that was pictured on the 3rd of July. If the further image, if further images are captured, individual animals can be identified by the shape of their distinctive pale chest, which has the fun name of being called a bib. They do have that lovely sort of pale white cream color uh, underside to them. They're an absolutely lovely species. And you know what? I can't wait to see more of them around. I, I would love to see them. Where you live, Aaron, is sort of almost prime uh, pine martin habitat, you know, and I could just... Just imagine, you know, going around yours and seeing a pine martin pop its head into the garden. I would love to see pine martin um, around here. Uh, and I'd love to see more red squirrel widely around. But yeah, I was going to, you kind of answered the question already, but, but I, I kind of, I could have assumed that it, it wouldn't have, a pine martin wouldn't have gone to London, like, on its own, really. I can't imagine that. Well, 80 miles is a bit of a distance. Yeah, and, um, and to pass... But the thing is, they, they may have been there, we just don't know it. And not, yeah, that's, well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, They are pretty elusive animals. I can say that years ago, a collection that I worked at had a tree fall on a pine martin enclosure. Now, the male was a bit of, a, bit of an idiot, and he basically sat there in this sort of half-crushed enclosure <laughs> and just waited for us to, uh, to basically catch him up and, and you know, put him into a, a safer enclosure. The female was gone within seconds. She, she spent weeks throughout the entire zoo, just basically from tree to tree. You, you'd get a very, you know, very, very slight glimpse if you were very, very lucky. And it was only through rebuilding this enclosure, 
leaving the door open and leaving a bit of food in there every now and again that we managed to get her back in. So you almost oh. had a, a, a soft reintroduction of at least one individual um, at that point. But uh, like I said, I won't name what zoo it was, but the, the animal itself, um, well, she was she was a shadow. You would have never seen her. But the male was just like a dog. He sort of sat there and went, hello. <laughs> I have to say, I've got a, uh, a, a real soft spot for that that group of animals, the, uh, yeah. the mustelids. Um yeah, I'd I'd love uh, pine mines. I'd love to see more of them about in the wild. Yeah, they are fantastic animals. Have you ever seen just have you ever seen Tara? Oh, yes, I have. I've seen them once at Exmoor Zoo. I think they've got them. Yeah, I used to work with two of them. They they are basically awesome. the spicy South American pine martin. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool animals. A lot of character. Hmm. They are, they're quite a cool looking thing. Um, I think they're the only ones around, aren't they, in the UK? That I don't know. Yeah. Well, mm. uh, if anyone knows of any other uh, Terra out in the UK um, in different collections, let us know. Um, right. Well, let's move on from Pine Martins. Uh, what have you got, Aaron? Um, yeah. So I've got um, got news. <laughs> it's not, good. I would, That's a start. It's not. Uh, I wouldn't say it's good news, but I wouldn't also. I'd also not. It's not so much bad news as much as a kind of a, well, duh, kind of thing. But yeah, um, my news again this week, I, uh, my news has come from fizz.org online. And the headline is fossil fuels causing cost of living crisis, uh, according to climate experts. Um, so and the news, water is wet. Water is wet, yeah. Uh, one day, one day, probably when it's too late, people will realize that it's all connected. <laughs> but yeah. So the current dive into financial oblivion that we're facing in Britain and Europe is uh, is being driven by fossil fuels. According to Johan Rockström, an earth systems scientist uh, and director of Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Uh, so Rockström has co-authored a new book, Earth for All, and has laid the blame firmly at the feet of our world leaders, as well he should and so should all of we. Uh, as they basically continue to fail to decarbonize their economies, which is something they've keep promising to do and just seem to shrug it off and not really pay too much priority to it. Now, the following is a bit of a longer quote than I'd usually include, but I feel he outlines his position on the subject better than I could summarize on his behalf. So uh, essentially, Roxton said uh, in an interview during a during a book launch on Tuesday just gone, I find it very disturbing that our political leaders in Europe are unable to communicate that high living costs right now are caused by higher prices on fossil fuels. So this is fossil fuel driven, supply driven inflation. If 20 years ago you invested in solar panels or had a share in a wind farm, you're not affected today. The only reason why we have this crisis now is that we've had 30 years of underinvestment in preparing towards this turbulent phase, which we knew would be coming. We've been saying since 1990 that we need to phase out the fossil fuel driven economy towards a renewable driven economy. And now here we are, we're hitting, we're now hitting the wall. And he's right. In fact, I can't remember my dates and, and my, the, uh, the politicians involved, but I think even in the 1970s, fossil fuels were being talked about but the right people were unfortunately were 
paid by you the... Uh, there being the right, well, as in you the know, direction, the right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, like, the people who had the power to do anything about it, they, uh, like I say, their pockets were being lined by the oil and, and all that. So there we go. And still, still are, obviously. Yeah. Uh, anyway, our energy prices skyrocketed in the last few weeks, and it's doubtful much more much good news will kind of follow it for a while on that front uh although they are starting to creep down not enough really yeah um, it's only only very minor yeah and winter, especially as, with as john Sir snow says winter is coming winter is coming. Oh, actually no sorry that's ned stark isn't it sorry well it's the whole stark family isn't it that's yeah. their that's their motto but yeah um as as, as you can say Russia is still disrupting oil and gas supplies with their ridiculous and venomous invasion of the Ukraine. That is not helping. Obviously, COVID didn't help at the time either. In Britain, we're seeing a twofold increase in the price cap, placing it at an average of uh, 3549 per year. Uh, by the way, I should have mentioned, when I, met, when I talked about fuel prices creeping back down, I was actually only talking about like the fuel for for cars, not for heating your home. The average this year is going to be like three thousand five hundred forty nine pound per year. Germany will now be paying nine hundred ninety five euros per megawatt hour, and France is now more than one thousand one hundred euros. Incidentally, this is a ten times increase on last year for both of the latter countries. Uh, so. It's a lot. The article states uh, that Rockstrom helped to pioneer the planetary boundaries. These are thresholds for human survival in an ever more polluted and hotter world. He stated that he hopes this news will be the final nail in the coffin for the oil, gas and coal industries, saying this should accelerate our transition towards renewable energy systems. And I agree that it should be. We do have time to turn this situation around. It's just unfortunate that we don't have the political leaders who care enough. Um, and certainly our new prime minister is probably not going to do anything about it either. And we continue to have a, a populace of people cannot wake up, particularly in, in Britain, uh, being still very much plugged into a version of the matrix in which the world isn't in crisis. Uh, so if you're listening to this podcast and similar content, it's probably up to you to wake your neighbours up. Uh, so to steal a quote from John Connor, if you're listening, you are the resistance. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> the the book well, at this rate we're going to end up living in a sort of post-apocalyptic terminated oh, situation yeah. so the the book that rockstrom has co-authored earth for all it's something of a spiritual um sequel to another book that was written 50 years ago called the limits to growth which warned that there were resource limits and consumption limits and that continuing with such a reckless attitude would end our civilization um, Earth for All, on the other hand, proposes two paths ahead of us. The first is the continued disrespect for our home, leading to worse problems, of course. And this is referred to as the too little, too late trajectory, <laughs> which I quite like the uh, I quite like um, how blunt that is. Uh, the second path is called the Great Leap trajectory, which optimistically follows a path where our leaders actually care and take immediate, decisive and powerful action to tackle issues such as eradicating poverty and inequality, empowering women, transforming global food systems to a more plant-based uh, kind of diets, uh, and rapidly decarbonizing energy. Uh, the article continues to outline the content of the book and the urgency with which such radical and necessary change needs to come about. And it's definitely worth a read. And uh, I mean, to be quite honest, I'll be purchasing the book when I can. Um, 
it's my partner and I like obviously continue to look for ways to change how we live for the better. Um, and I certainly would like to give a look to the book that came before as well. If anyone's interested in them, it's um, the two books are the first one is the limits to growth and the book that Rockstrom is co-authored. Uh, the one that we're talking about now is, is earth for all. So, yeah, we're definitely going to be um, stuck on the first trajectory. I mean, let's face it. I hate to sound all doom and gloom only a couple of minutes into the episode, but uh, the first one, A, it's... is cheaper uh, and B, well, cheaper in the short term uh, and B, uh, they still get to keep all their money. You know, It's hard to imagine a world where British and American politicians care enough to make these changes. Yeah. I, you know I was quite gone. No, the one thing that <laughs> for all all of those Trekkies out there, and I say specifically Trekkies because Star Wars doesn't happen on Earth. Um, as... Well, Star Wars is also, realistically, Star Wars is sci-fantasy rather yeah, than sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Star Trek, there, there is a point where humanity basically goes from its lowest point, which coincidentally in, I think, Star Trek canon is 90, like 1997. Do you imagine if we'd have turned everything around in 1997? And uh, essentially, you know, humanity does the right thing. And it's sad to think that that is 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 basically fantasy, you know. Mm. By this point, we should be we should be relying on on renewable energy. We should be trying to treat everyone equally. We should be building a, a planet that's better. In fact, we should even have a bloody moon base by this point. What worries me? What concerns me? Because I I I get the science behind it. I get it. I and I I can see. I can understand that there is still time to change it. What really concerns me is how loudly very prominent and um, very well-educated people are calling for this change. And it's like, they're just block-headed, just going to go keep bulldozing through Earth's resources, keep wrecking the planet. And mm-hmm. and like, it's just, I might be misquoting him and I, I don't, believe in lying to uh to prove your point or to you know get people on your side but when the heat wave came boris johnson essentially just said go out and enjoy the summer like what is going through this guy's mind what is going through all their minds nothing <laughs> like it, yeah i know but it's like i don't know i find it very concerned that people who should be listening aren't listening and they it's think- scary the amount of public that think this is all some sort of conspiracy like uh, I mean, the whole what thing. What level needs, of idiot are you? Well, the whole thing needs to be torn down. It's not even so much as as idiots. It's an entire generation of people who have been brainwashed by the media of which they partake in every single day, buying that same newspaper that they've bought for generations because that's where they've got their news from, which is mm-hmm. fair enough. But then the problem is the people who are, you know, who are writing those articles down have a bias because they are being told to have a bias because the company is owned by someone who has a bias. So you end up with this pre-told story being changed and you can, you can end up with politicians like, like Trump, like Boris, like all of these ones that will do something so, so anti against the, the people, but because it's put with a spin in a newspaper people will think it's a good idea. They'll think it's the best idea since sliced bread and they'll go with it. Or 
it's a way of owning the uh, the other side, making your enemy, you know, drinking your enemy's tears. No one in their right mind wants to do things like that. But it's seen as a like, yeah, this will really hack them off. The enemy, the them, the woke, you know, all yeah. of that. Yeah. But it it it's a it has to be a complete teardown from the bottom up to basically the, change the way the system works. The other problem is, of course, like it, it, you're quite right, it's a gener generation uh, problem. However, these people have had kids, and their mm -hmm. kids, like you have to hope that you have to hope that they've they've found something that has that has turned their attention towards the science of it but the chances are they've just been brainwashed by their parents so it's all it's all nonsense but um, yeah. lefty hippie nonsense like, although i think we can agree on one thing we are not going to solve this issue this evening so <laughs> so let's move on let's move on shall we let's let's move on from talking about ways that we can solve well literally everything with you know politics the economy social issues and uh, just generally the uh, the country itself and let's go and take a dip in a river shall we um let's go and meet our creature in our creature feature it's the creature feature right well we're into this week's creature feature uh, and this week we are dipping our toes into the the river aaron you've got a river down by uh, by you well you've mentioned that you've seen some rather large fish in there have you ever seen a pike well, this was a really bad time to put some halloumi in my mouth. But no, I've, I've not seen a pike. <laughs> well, why on earth are you eating now of all times? <laughs> right, well, uh, a pike, basically, um, is this week's creature feature. My first real encounter with a pike, I've never actually seen one alive underwater, but I have certainly seen evidence of them. And my first, I would say, real, like, tangible bit of, of uh, proper evidence of one was quite a few years ago now, I came across a skull of quite a large pike. The skull itself was a good 20, uh, even 25 centimetres long. So it was a big fish, this one. And the back of the skull had been chewed by, well, probably the animal that had killed it, which would have been something like an otter. So this would have been an interesting fight, to say the least. A very large fish versus an equally quite large uh, mustelid. Uh, and the skull was lying there. And it's it's a fish that's fascinated me since childhood, but, uh, you know, ever since that, finding that skull, I think I still have it somewhere in a box uh, because it's mm. it's an impressive looking skull. The teeth on this thing are amazing. Anyway, as you could probably guess, this is going to be about how adapt a predator these fish are. So when I say pike, this could actually mean something to quite a few different people because if you live pretty much anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, You'll have encountered a pike or at least one of its close relatives. So in the UK, we just call them pike. Uh, in the US and Canada, uh, they tend to call them northern pike. So it's the same fish, uh, which is Essox lucius. You will also find them right the way across Europe, right the way across Central and Northern Asia, and then sort of dipping up more towards um, the edge of uh, Russia uh, as well. So they, they don't go up as far as like the Arctic Circle, but they do go up into Russia. Um, so basically a band across the Northern Hemisphere is where you'll find these guys. And they are quite distinctive, but we'll get on to all of the features that these fish have and what make them uh, supreme killing machines in a minute. 
So the name pike itself is very much an English word, and it comes from their resemblance to the pole weapon. Now, annoyingly, obviously, Drew's away on holiday at the moment. Medieval weaponry is very much one of his forte and something I would have loved to talk about uh, with him. Unfortunately, yeah, he's he's not here at the moment. But the fish itself is said to resemble the pole weapon, which if you think about it, it does very much look like the uh, the sort of the blade on the end of a pike in, in some ways. They're sort of long and blade-like. But it's also the word pike comes from the Middle English for pointed. So it's, you know, sort of shared in amongst the uh the the two sort of meanings uh, and in fact when it comes to their taxonomic name the second half of it the lucius bit uh is to do with the fact that that years and years ago they were often referred to as lucies or a lucy or a loose uh and this is just basically a name that seems to have stuck around uh, and then it was turned into the uh, the taxonomic naming uh, for this particular species. Like I say, you may know this fish by a, a few different names because let me reel off just some of the names that you'll find for this fish in its absolutely massive range. So they're often known as jackfish, jack, or jack pike. In fact, male pike tend to get called jack pike um, as opposed to female ones which just go, get called pike. Um, so they can be known as a jackfish or a jack, a slough shark, uh, a snake, a slimer, a slough snake, a gator, due to the similar sort of shape that these guys do have uh, to an alligator head. And looking at the skull of one, you can see there's a definite resemblance. They're also known as hammer handles, uh, as well as long heads, pointy noses. Basically, there are loads and loads of names for this fish. Because Maybe it's the cougar of such... the fish world. Well, essentially, it's... Yeah, these are just the ones that are in English. Uh, so, yeah, essentially, just like uh, the cougar uh, or the puma or the mountain lion <laughs> or the, what was it, purple feather? Purple you know, feather. The, these are, these are all different names that are given to this fish. Um, and like I say, these are just the ones in English. So it's it's a very widespread fish. It's very well known. If you're an angler, you'll certainly know this fish. So, yeah, it's it's it's, well, very easy to spot. Sorry for anyone in the Southern Hemisphere, because you probably wouldn't have encountered one of these fish, but there are fish that fill the same sort of ecological niche. So, like I say, their range pretty well covered. You'll find pike living in a variety of different habitats. Um, you'll find them living in sluggish streams or fast-flowing streams. They actually quite like uh, quite high oxygenated water. They like it to be quite cool as well. Um, they don't really like uh, warmer waters. They like shallows in some places so they can sneak up on things. Weedy places uh, in lakes, especially in reservoirs. But in rivers, they're quite happy to go and hang around sort of uh, rocky embankments. You'll also find them hanging around uh, any fallen trees, overhanging riverbanks. Basically, the perfect place to sit and wait for their prey to come to them. These fish are ambush hunters. They are fantastically built to hunt down their favorite prey, um, which, well, I'll get onto them in a minute. But you'll find them hanging out, usually on their own. They're not very sociable fish. Uh, they'll tend to, uh, to sort of hide away in a fallen log or uh, in some long reeds and just sit there and wait and watch. Uh, and they will let their prey do all the, uh, <laughs> do all of the, the coming to them, as it were. Diet for these fish? Well, they'll pretty much eat anything. Like I say, when, when I came across this pike head all those years ago, 
Um, you can see inside of the skull, there are massive teeth at the front and they're recurved. They point backwards, meaning that anything gets that gets stuck in that mouth gets stuck. And anytime it struggles, it's going to just push itself onto those teeth even worse. Behind those big teeth on the front edge of the uh, both jaws, you've got lots and lots of small little teeth, uh, like little razor blades, basically, slicing at the prey itself, causing more bleeding, causing the fish to basically die a lot quicker uh, and making it a lot easier for the pike to be able to, uh, to eat its prey. Their diet... And it depends on where you'll find these guys. Certainly in the UK, uh, these fish will eat anything from small insects um, when they're obviously quite young. They're going to catch pretty much any small insect like Daphnia, water boatmen, uh, even things like diving beetles they'll take on, as well as uh, dragonfly nymphs. Uh, they'll quite happily eat. As they start to get bigger, they'll start to take on fish. Fish is obviously the most abundant food source in a river for these guys to be able to find things like roach, trout, uh, even young salmon. As they get bigger, these fish uh, will start to take on even more exotic things, as you could probably imagine. The river that I found this particular skull by uh, was in an area where there were quite a few water voles. And believe it or not, water voles, which are a decent sized animal, about the same size as a rat, uh, are part of their diet as well. They'll even quite happily take ducklings when they're fully grown as well. And there have been some reports, relatively reliable ones, that in 2016, an individual was observed trying to drown and eat a great crested grebe. They're quite a decent sized bird. They're about the same size as an adult duck. So um, this this was a this was a well versed pike. It was trying to take on something that would have uh, been a hell of a meal for it. But it doesn't stop there because as well as this incident, a pre uh, the previous year in 2015, uh, an attack by a large pike between three and four feet long was implicated as the possible cause of the injury and death of an adult mute swan. And this was, wow. uh, <laughs> which if you've ever seen a swan on the water uh, distance, mm. they look pretty big birds. If you've ever got up close to an adult swan, they're huge birds. If you've ever had to catch one, they can be slightly terrifying. I have, I have done all three. Uh, so yeah, for an adult uh, mute swan um, to be attacked and well killed, now it doesn't say that it ate it because there is no physical way on earth a pike is going to be able to swallow an adult mute swan, let alone probably even a cygnet. But yes, it was certainly attacked, so it may have uh, allowed this swan to basically bleed to death. And uh, this was on the uh, the lower. I'm going to butcher this. Lower Lou Urn uh, in Northern Ireland. I'm sorry for anyone in Northern Ireland. I have probably butchered that name. Uh, but it's generally believed that such attacks are rare on occasions as these sort of things don't obviously happen, as you could probably guess, because people would be afraid to go in the water or go anywhere near their local rivers um, for fear of being attacked by a pike. Although, you know, I think Britain needs a few more dangerous creatures. Let's face it, they're you know, the most dangerous thing we've got to worry about is, I don't know, a deer running in front of your car, which is pretty dangerous, I suppose. You know, we, we don't really we don't really feature on those programs of deadliest animals. You know, we've sort of mildest animals. <laughs> anyway, we do have some pretty extreme, you know, predators. Oh, no, a sheep. Well, yeah. So, like I say, there's, they can get pretty big and there's some record breaking sizes for these fish. 
as you could probably imagine, Britain has quite a large percentage of people who like to go out angling. Um, I've never really found the uh, the joy of sitting there by a canal bank trying to get a carp to eat <laughs> something on a hook. Sea fishing's always been a bit more my thing because it's it's a bit more lucky dip. You know, you could end up with all sorts of different creatures uh, on the end of your line, which I think makes it that little bit more fascinating. But there are people who do specifically go angling to catch pike. Uh, they are a very, very sort of aggressive game fish. So, you know, people do enjoy that. I can Fished see that. by only a daring elite. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you want to go in and do hand-to-hand combat with it. No, as far as I'm aware, no one's doing hand-to-hand <laughs> combat with a, <laughs> with a pike. A pike with a pike. <laughs> well, there you go. But weights and sizes for these fish. Now, it was very hard to find actual, like, good records on how long <laughs> these fish can get, how heavy they can get there's certainly some decent sizes on here so in north america and canada you tend to find that these fish don't generally get as big as their european counterparts one of the largest specimens one of the largest whilst you're struggling gareth i'm sorry for laughing then but i just hadn't i just the the idea of a pike being stabbed by a pike made me think of like a pipe a pike kebab and for some reason that was hilarious Okay. So on on top on like a pike exception. <laughs> North American Canada, you don't tend to see these fish getting much bigger than uh, they do in Europe. Um, we seem to have larger specimens here. Uh, it's probably to do with lack of competition from other species. This you know is is probably one of the main reasons. But one of the largest specimens known to have been caught uh, was caught in 1992. Uh, and in fact, I've even been able to find the name of the person who did it. Roy Lewis, like I say, we were able to find his name uh, uh, from uh, Lanargavedes Reservoir in South Wales. I can only apologize to everyone in Wales and to my dad if he's listening to this episode, because he's probably going to be screaming at whatever he's listening to this on going. No, that's not how you pronounce it. But yes, uh, your ancestors are coming reservoir. for you. Sorry. I said your ancestors are coming for you. They'll, they will be, yeah. <laughs> um, but there have been reports of much larger fish uh, being caught in some places. <laughs> as, as I said before, there's always a bigger fish. Um, but there's always a bigger fish, and it's probably, you know, much, much bigger when you go down the pub. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those that it's increased in size easily twofold so basically they they seem to be you know around this sort of 21 kilo mark but what i love is the fact that i looked up all these things where it was saying that north american specimens of these fish generally aren't much bigger than their european counterparts and then i found that the largest pike that's ever been caught and released was in may 2004 in lake apisco in canada and that was 28 kilos so a full seven kilos bigger than the one caught in wales so (laughs) I don't know what what was going on there, but that fish was 152 centimeters long. So it's one one and a half meters long. That fish, uh, that is a big, big fish, and it basically shows that these are well supreme apex predators in their environments because they use their adaptions uh, to full effect. So what are some of the adaptions that these fish have? You may be able to picture what a pike looks like, but I'll give you a rundown anyway if you can't. Imagine a very long fish with quite a large head. That head itself has a very sort of alligator-like appearance to it. The eyes are situated at the top of the head. Uh, The mouth sort of dips down and is quite sort of long and flattened. 
and like I say, full of very, very sharpened teeth. You follow that down a very long body with the fins grouped towards the back of the, the, uh, the animal's body. So that top fin, the dorsal fin that fish have, that is pointed right the way back towards the tail. And the same with the anal fin, which is the, the one underneath near its bum, basically. And that sort of all matches up with their tail fin as well. Now that and their front fins, uh, uh, with their front fins at which they can steer themselves with, all allow this fish to basically act like a dart. It's fast. It's hydrodynamic. It will rush through the water. Those t- uh, those uh, tail fins combined with the, the anal and dorsal fins act like one big fin and allow for explosive movement fast forward. So they can achieve explosive bursts of speed uh, when using those fins. And they can actually reach up to 10 miles an hour underwater. So as you could imagine, any fish that has that coming towards it with those razor sharp teeth slamming into it, it's pretty much game over for that fish. So like I was saying, their eyes, there are grooves in front and above their eye allowing good vision. So they can basically have almost stereoscopic vision to target their prey uh, and look above them as well. So if there's something like a duckling sitting on the surface of the river, they can sneak up on it and engulf it with that huge mouth of theirs. Uh, In the mouth, um, they have loads and loads of recurved teeth, varying in sizes, like I said, that will hang on to the prey, stop it from slipping back out of the mouth as well. So all those teeth are pointing backwards. And a bit like the, uh, the sort of protrusions that you see on the inside of a turtle's throat that stop jellyfish from coming back out of their mouth, these teeth also help to force the prey down little by little, meaning that it has zero chance of escaping. If something does manage to struggle whilst it's in the mouth of a pike, their teeth are actually coated in a saliva that acts as an anticoagulant. So as the prey is wounded, hanging on uh, to those teeth there, it is going to keep bleeding. And that might actually explain how a pike was able to uh, injure and bring down a uh, swan. Because if it bit it enough times with this anticoagulant in its saliva, it could have meant that the swan actually bled out as opposed to uh, it being able to lacerate it somehow in some horrific manner. But these fish also have a fantastic sense of smell. Most people don't tend to think of fish as having a good sense of smell, but it's vitally important. Um, Smell does transmit very well underwater, and these fish are supremely adapted for it. Their nostrils are right towards the, the, uh, the front of their uh, their nose so they pick up things they also pick up uh, tastes in the water as well and they'll be able to see if there's something going on whether it's the taste of an already injured fish uh, any of those sort of things that might um, mean that there's uh, possible prey hanging around now they also have the sense uh, that runs down the center on either side of all fish and that's the lateral line which is that long line that you'll see running down the uh, the center of a body of a fish they can detect um, changes in pressure in the water. So these guys will be able to sit there in the reeds and wait for those uh, animals to come to them. So the body shape of these fish, as I mentioned before, is built for explosive bursts of speed forward uh, to grab onto their prey. They're not active hunters uh, in the sense of chasing their prey down. They're ambush hunters. Uh, And this is a technique that works for quite a few other species of fish that are totally and utterly unrelated. Things like arapaima, from South America. They also have their anal and their dorsal fin 
swept towards the back with their tail fin, allowing it to become essentially one large thing that allows them to race forward. Barracudas uh, are another fish that are very similar in body shape to this particular one that allow themselves to be able to race forward uh, and grab a hold of their prey. Uh, in fact, they're basically a marine equivalent of these guys uh, in how they hunt and kill their prey. But to blend in with their environments, they have different colored skin. These guys living in very, very green places, uh, very, very green rivers and streams have a lovely green through to olive green colored uh, mottling over their body with lots of little splotches that basically look like dappled sunlight coming through the uh, the water, hitting the, um, the the vegetation so they can blend in. They are essentially doing what tigers do best, relying on that breakup of light mm. as, it, as it comes through the, the forest to, to keep them hidden, essentially. And the, the final sort of thing to, to mention about how these fish look as well is how they can uh, stalk their prey as well. So they will sit there and ambush hunt things, but they will also slowly move towards prey items if they sense there is some sort of weakness there. Uh, and they do this in just, just such a slow manner of just sort of creeping up on things until the very last moment using that explosive burst of speed to jump out and grab a hold and engulf their prey. Their skull is made up of lots of little bones all joined together with very elastic ligaments that are very much like snakes' uh, skulls. So it means that they can uh, go from having one sort of compact-shaped head to sort of engulf their prey a lot easier uh, and then start swallowing it down. Like I say, if they're eating something the size of a duckling, uh, that is going to be quite the feat for their body to undertake. But they can do it, and then they'll go and find themselves a nice place to go and digest their prey. Feeding on things like that, large stuff, they're probably not going to eat more than one large duckling a week. Uh, if they're eating smaller fish, it's probably one a day, one, a, uh, one to two a day, that sort of thing. So... There is also another thing that falls on the menu of the pike. Aaron, can you guess what other what other thing might be on a pike's menu? Big Mac and fries. I'm, uh, you know what? I'm fairly certain that in some places in the world, there's probably. I mean, these guys are found right away across Europe and North America, so there's probably <laughs> a good chance there's been a Big Mac and fries thrown in uh, to a lake near one at some point. But no, not uh... coming to a lake near you. <laughs> Not a Big Mac and fries. I think something a bit more natural. A bit more natural. Oh, any, any thoughts? No. What, what, what is it? Well, it's pike. Pike oh, are cannibals. I could have... Bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they are a fish that will quite happily eat one another. And this uh, combined with the fact that their uh, their mating sort of season around sort of springtime you see a lot of the males uh, who are usually smaller than the females mobbing the, the females themselves to sort of push the others out of the way to try and mate. Basically the biggest, the toughest male will be the one who will try and mate. You still need to watch out because, well, they are cannibalistic and he may not live to see another day if he does something uh, wrong in front of her. So yeah, pike very much fall on the menu of pike, even baby pike. Uh, once they've uh, they've hatched out and start growing, they have to watch out for any any family relation that might be around because well they might try and eat them. Uh, and you might be wondering how long do pike live as well? They have quite a slow 
growing process, um, but they can live to be anywhere to between seven to 10 years of age. Um, there have been pike kept in captivity as well. They don't really do too well in sort of indoor aquariums and they tend to uh, like colder water. So it's, it's a lot harder to keep them in an indoor aquarium as opposed to other places. But those that have been kept in captivity have sort of reached the 10 year old mark and got a little bit uh, older than that. Most probably won't see past seven years of age because they do have to watch out for a couple of predators. Younger pike do have to watch out for things like herons and even other species of fish. Uh, a full-grown trout or a full-grown salmon or... Um, I'm a head shark. <laughs> <laughs> or something like a Wells catfish uh, will quite happily uh, snap up and eat uh, a small pike. In fact, Wells catfish are another supreme predator of European waters and get even bigger, which we will, I'm sure, cover at some point on another creature feature. They're the ones that, I don't know whether you've seen it, Aaron, the videos of them hunting pigeons, I think in Spain or in France. Uh, is that in, I think it's in Spain. It's in that river, the really big one um, that goes through that Thargoza. really big river. Yeah, the really, really big river. <laughs> that one river that's in Spain. That, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you do, you do uh, see them hunting things like that. And there have been some footage of pike doing similar things, just not to um, uh, not to pigeons, but to small fish uh, and frogs uh, in the uh, the sort of undergrowth. But like I say, as they grow, they've got to watch out for all sorts of stuff. Two of the big predators, uh, sorry, three of the big predators for the sort of larger fish. Herons will take them up to a certain size. Otters would be the other major predator and is the reason why I was able to find that skull all those years ago. Uh, and the third one is obviously humans. Uh, because, well, people like to catch fish. So, yeah. So there we go. Um, that's the pike, uh, a species of fish that I absolutely love. And one day, one of these fish that I really hope to get some good underwater footage of. Right. Well, we'll move on from our creature feature. And we're going to dive right into the reed beds of our emails for this week. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we've jumped out of the river with the pike and we've now dived into the reed beds of the mailbag. So, uh, Aaron, what have we got hidden away amongst the reeds here? We have a question from Simon Barnes's wife. And I she think, asks... I think we've had the whole of Simon Barnes's we, family now contacted. Yeah, we have. We have. <laughs> <laughs> What's she got to say? I think our listenership grows just off of... Simon Barnes' family. family joining in. <laughs> Any um, other members of Simon Barnes's family want to uh, uh, want to get in contact with us? They certainly can. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, she asks, uh, "What are the best wildflowers to plant?" I'll go first because uh, Gareth will have a lot more to say. Uh, he's much more horticulturally sound than I am. Uh, but from my perspective, it's all about kind of bees, butterflies, and plant diversity. So if you get a good mix of pollen-rich plants and a good mix of plants that will flower through the season, so so summer flowering or so on and so forth, to basically ensure that there's food year-round for everything that's enjoying your garden. I'd also stress to try and keep your garden native. Native plants benefit native species and native habitats best. Uh, so kind of look into what is nationally and locally appropriate for where you live um other things i'd suggest looking into that aren't necessarily wildflower related i guess but more wild plant 
don't use pesticides um, and where a lawn is desired or necessary, consider having a moss lawn instead of a uh, instead of a grass one. Yeah, I think that's pretty much that Gareth go from there, really. <laughs> that's fair enough. I mean, I am by no means a gardener. Um, I just like spending. Well, I mean, you've got a you've got an impressive enough garden anyway, and you've got a bigger garden than I do. We've kind of just we looked for bee friendly flower uh, flowers, um, and we've got quite a bit of wild weeds that we allow uh, to kind of thrive here. I think the only things that we are that we do have that aren't necessarily, I guess, locally native or or whatnot is we've got um we've got an apple tree a pear tree and we've encouraged some wild strawberries wild raspberries and wild blackberries we just bought a blueberry plant as well to put in somewhere so it's all either kind of intended for like the insects or it's intended to to feed us yeah Um, it's a productive garden there's nothing wrong with that my um the way i've done my garden is very much sort of selfish to the 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 wants of what I have because I've kept quite a few stick insects over the years. I've always mm. wanted to have a garden with all of the food plants that they need, uh, not just bramble close to hand. If you've if you've ever kept some of the ones that have very specific food needs, it's a pain in the bum trying to find those bits of food. So my mm. garden that I have with with my sort of specimen plants is planted mostly with that in mind however saying that one of the the other plants that i have mixed in um that i'm very very fond of that is not native to the uk uh in any way shape or form is a fuchsia Uh, i've got a few different fuchsias and the bees absolutely love them they're laden with pollen uh and they're a really good food source for them they grow quick and they usually hang around and they have fruit on them as well so there is um food for things that well, we'll quite happily eat them. In fact, uh, I've seen one or two blackbirds uh, take one or two of the berries. So there's food for the birds there as well. Now, when it comes to planting a garden, it's entirely up to you. Your garden is your space. What might work in one garden won't work in another. Um, you've, you know, you may have different light conditions. You may have loads of shade. You may have uh, really poor drainage. You may have the best drainage in the world and it's almost impossible to keep anything that likes a bit of water. So you've got to go with what you've got there. In some cases, planting exotic species of plants might be the only ones that can really thrive in that particular uh, habitat because the garden itself in, in itself might be an artificial sort of area. It might be in the middle of a town or something like that. But as long as you plant something that if you're trying to attract bees and insects to feed on it, has lots of flowers on it and has that sort of high yield for them, the the bees aren't really going to care. You want to find the ones that are going to be the the most nectar rich. Before we go down the route of uh, naming some really good British species, I'm also quite, I would say quite controversially, a big defender of some weeds. Now, a weed is only a plant where it's not wanted. Um, and some of the ones that I quite like for the, the simple reason that um, you always see it crawling with insects, things like buddleia, which is not native to the UK and can be a weed, is otherwise known as butterfly bush because it's covered in butterflies and um, bees when it's flowering. It's fantastic. Uh, it's almost impossible to kill 
you could you could strap a hand grenade to it and let it go it would still be there next year they can be really you know easy to spread and you tend to see them growing on wasteland um they're not native to the uk but they've almost become part of the, the environment other things like himalayan balsam uh, which if you've ever been down by a riverbank you'll have almost certainly seen uh, it spreads by throwing its seeds into the water uh, and just pitching up where the next um, available bit of land is that's another one that's really quite bad in pushing out our native species the only good thing about it is it does have lots of flowers that really do seem to attract bees uh, and other pollinating insects so not great in the sense for our native species but good for the insects so another one that is one that really doesn't sit well with a lot of people who who own land or have any kind of farming animals is ragwort. Now, there's probably a few of you that might have sheep or horses as pets and are instantly going, no, no, kill it, get rid of it all. Ragwort itself is another non-native species that was brought to the UK. It was actually originally brought as a specimen plant. It's a member of the daisy family. And if you look at the flowers, they're really quite pretty flowers. They're bright yellow, big clumps of them. They look really, really nice. It is toxic if it gets fed to horses and cattle and things like that. Um, usually in the hay, if I remember correctly, it's to do with if it's dry, it's, its toxins are far more potent than if it's fresh. Most things don't tend to eat it. But yeah. it's a really, really good food plant for a lot of caterpillars. Really, really good uh, flowering plant as well to give you that bright yellow color. So if you've got you know native plants that you want sitting there, and you want something that effectively grows really well and grows quickly, weeds can sometimes be that thing. We're always, you know, we're always saying that having dandelions on your lawn is a fantastic thing. This is basically the same principle, you know, allowing those weeds to basically grow will, um, will be far more beneficial uh, for all the insects concerned uh, than anything else. And they do look nice. But... If you really want to go down the uh, the route of um, some UK natives, uh, I've put together a little list of some of the ones I think are some of the prettiest uh, that you'll most likely come across. And they're not exactly the hardest to look after. That's the definite benefit of them being natives. They're used to living in the UK. So things like primrose, uh, lovely little flower, which if you've been for a walk through a wood, you'll have probably seen. They look a bit like a dandelion. In some ways, yellow flowers, green leaves, quite low to the ground, and a lot of people do get them confused. But these are very, very pretty little flowers. Foxglove is another one. Quite dangerous uh, if you were to sort of mess around with them, because that's where you get that's where you get digitalis uh, toxin from is in foxglove. So one probably not to have around pets or young children. But foxgloves look absolutely stunning. They're really, really good at attracting bees. You can get a million and one different cultivars from the garden center. So they range from everything from pure white right the way through to purple, red, pinks, you name it. All sorts of different colors. Snakehead fritillary is another nice little one. It's got these odd little pinky purple, uh, like bell-like flowers that hang upside down that are really quite pretty, quite low to the ground. But of course, you can mix them in with things like golden shield ferns and some of the native ferns as well. They'll help create a little bit of low cover uh, and keep that humidity down to the ground as well. So that things like toads and frogs 
can move in amongst everything and I'll actually control most of your slugs and snails. So if you're having things like that planted around, like Aaron's got his uh, fruit trees and, and all of those different fruit and veg things, it means that you basically get that extra protection as well, whilst it also looks nice. Things like Lily of the Valley, um, they've got these lovely little white flowers on them, little bell-shaped flowers. Red Valerian is one that I can't uh, praise enough. It's not technically native, but you will find it, if you're anywhere in the West Country, you'll see it on walls. Um, it is known as the Cornish weed. It grows pretty much everywhere. It comes in pinks, reds, whites. There's loads of different cultivars of that as well. It's absolute favorite food by things like hummingbird hawk moths. Uh, and they look stunning when they, they're feeding on that. And the flowers themselves look amazing. Um, I've got some of them personally in my garden. Ragged Robin um, is a small, pretty little pink flower on quite a large sort of plant. It spreads quite well. Uh, Betony, um, that's another pretty little blue one. Honeysuckle, if you've got a vertical structure to cover up, Honeysuckle's brilliant for that, and bees absolutely love it. Um, they've got really strong-smelling flowers uh, as well. And um, dog roses, they're uh, a pretty good one to, to have growing in a, a hedgerow. You can quite easily get away with them. You'll then get rose hips on them uh, in the autumn time, about now, which the birds will love to eat. Uh, you can make rosehip tea, I think it is, and all sorts of other things. So you can, in fact have sort of a double whammy there. They've got these lovely pink flowers, which will attract the insects, and then you can well, harvest bits off them as well. So they, they look really nice. They're basically a wild rose, essentially. Mm. So there's a variety of different things. Some other honorable mentions as well is native daffodils, which are about half the size of the daffodils you'll see in the shops. The flowers are really small, but there are native species. Uh, and what we should be growing and then selling uh, in the shops, as opposed to these big foreign species, uh, you know that we that we have, so they look really pretty, but they're only around for a certain time of the year. Around the same sort of lot as well, native bluebells. There are some nurseries that will sell them. It's very illegal to go and take bluebells from the wild, so do not do that. Go and appreciate them in some of the places where they they grow. Uh, and if you're you know if you're lucky enough to have a small wood that has bluebells growing in them. Um, try and just keep the ones that are the uh, the native UK species um, because we're very lucky in that sense um, for having the amount of bluebells that we do up and down the country compared to sort of the amount of territory that they would uh, inhabit in parts of Europe. But it's entirely up to you. There is all sorts of different things that you can plant. I've got Tasmanian tree ferns and a monkey puzzle. They're not going <laughs> to attract... <laughs> they're not going to attract any insects in that sort of sense not for many many years yet nor monkeys um, if you're if you're hopeful <laughs> about that well yeah but i've also got a rockery that's like, like say there's now a toad living in you know it's always crawling with wolf spiders so there's got to be food there for those uh, to be able to catch and eat um so yeah there's it's hab it's creating habitats not necessarily just planting flowers I, I have yeah. a feeling we could go into gardener's world in this sort of sense. We could be here all day. So, uh, well, yeah. This is this is why I uh, I deferred to you for a proper answer. It's <laughs> like I said, there, there is no one set answer. There is not a this is the plant you must have. It's a mm. these are a whole bunch of plants. Which ones do you like? You know, 
your, your garden is basically a uh, a canvas and you're the painter that was that was poetic <laughs> oh yeah i do i do poetry <laughs> right <laughs> let's move on to our next question shall we yeah the next question is, it comes from that indie lady and she asks what one species would cause the most amount of consequences if it went extinct i am thinking bees that was her answer to her own question. Oh, right. I was going to say, you're just getting straight in there. <laughs> just get straight. Uh, my answer is, um, I mean, yeah, I think bees is a good shout, but I think if you sit back and think about it, literally every species is a linchpin at the end of the day. And once lost, it will have a cascading negative impact thereafter. A single tree or a single tree species on which an entire species can live never leaving um the loss of that tree is akin to an armageddon uh, so it could also be to do with perspective i guess your um your tigers uh if you hunt the sandbar and the boar to extinction you'll lose the tigers um if you wipe out the beavers and the wolves you'll lose your rivers and suffer flooding more frequently and over grazing over browsing blah 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 so on and so forth if you wipe out spiders i mean this is this is exaggeration but if you were to wipe out spiders you'd be wading through a bunch of fly carcasses <laughs> um but yeah uh, pollinators such as bees are indescribably important and a very scary thought would be to lose them um but I think Gareth's got an even better answer. Well, I mean, we both talked about this initially because you you were you considered this, but you you said it might be the the easy cop out answer of which I then yeah, I've, piped then up when, and said and felt very silly. <laughs> but when we when we spoke about it, and I've, it is it is true. I mean, it, it was obviously true to begin with, but I just thought that I thought maybe I should think deeper, but. It it well Gareth Gareth will explain it because it is a very <laughs> sometimes good the best answers come from the simplest minds and basically I went with the species that is going to have the most impact if it went extinct because the question didn't necessarily say uh, good or bad impact our <laughs> assumption would be a bad impact if bees mm. went extinct but humans essentially if we became extinct tomorrow, if we all just suddenly disappeared off the face of the planet, a lot of species would go extinct and a lot of species would, well, recover. Um, so if you think about it in terms of all of those species that are held in captive collections, which may be the last of their kind, they'll essentially starve to death um, and those species will disappear. Species that themselves need humans to essentially exist um, out in wild populations that are being kept uh, safe, they'll also disappear as well. Um, but on the flip side of that, things like uh, areas of forest where we've been cutting them down, at, like, you know, nobody's business, would stop instantly. And you'd start to see the forests retaking those areas. So in, in a matter of decades, areas of forest mm. that once were open and, barren deserts effectively are reclaimed you'd start to see um cities that are artificially kept green like dubai you know uh, in in places like dubai and parts of america uh, around you know uh, arizona and, and um new mexico and places like that where they, they pump in thousands of gallons of water every single day to essentially keep golf courses 
and areas completely green in what is naturally a desert would disappear within months back to being mm. desert with humans gone the planet would start to go back to what it essentially is it wouldn't be the same planet it was before humans because unfortunately would probably get to a point where a lot of the nuclear power plants around the planet with no humans to tend them um, would start to go into meltdown and well we'd end up with nuclear radiated parts of the world so it <laughs> would be a bad day in a lot of those places um, yeah well but you then get to a point where if you kept on this same path, you know, uh, eventually, just like Chernobyl, um, those areas are reclaimed very quickly by wildlife. It only took a matter of decades for that to happen in, in Chernobyl and uh, the planet would rebuild. So I think the uh, the one species that would have the biggest impact in my mind is is definitely humans. Um you know, That's it would be definitely humans, a species, not definitely human or <laughs> regular. Well, we regular, don't think uh... definitely human is definitely human. We're not no, we don't think he's human. We doubt that he's human. <laughs> he's not prevent. He's not presented us with a, enough credentials to prove that he is human as of yet. So uh, that is yet to be seen. But yeah, I think humans would would probably play the biggest role if, uh, you know, it, you're talking about a species going extinct. And I agree. Um I think I was just trying to overthink it. I thought it'd be a bit of a cop out to say that, but uh, when when we spoke about it, um, and we kind of exchanged, it somewhat exchanged notes in our conversation. Um, it it was the the best answer, really. Well, the um the the only other real way. I mean, most people tend to think about it in terms of uh, instantly, you know, instantly going for things like bees, which are important. Um, mm. but yeah, it, it's, it is one of those ones that if you, if you did wipe out bees, you know, tomorrow in the same sort of situation, you end up losing, uh, fruits, vegetables, all those sort of different things that rely on them. That's mm. still a relatively small impact part. And you would have other plants and animals that would fill in the same role. And, and this also plays to the part of, um, what people uh, like Dr. Erica, who, who came on and talked about flies, they're huge pollinators, almost on the same level as bees. Things like moths as well are also huge pollinators. So it's very easy to sell the idea of bees being the ones that need saving as opposed to save the flies. You know, it doesn't get anywhere near the uh, the same level of press as as they would but they're just as important so you can use bees as an umbrella species in much the same way that you use yeah. a tiger in in um in asia exactly yeah but essentially the one thing we should take away from this is no species should go extinct by our hands there will be species that go extinct naturally that's just the way of things you know ideally we don't want any species to go extinct because they all have a part to play like you were saying they are all linchpins in their own environments. Canned applause. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, if uh, you, dear listeners at home, want to, want to find out what species we think should go extinct, why not? Let's do that. <laughs> Let us know that one species we want wiped off the face of the earth. If you want to know what we think, what species we think definitely human is, then yeah. 
That's also let true. Us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can do that by getting in contact with us. You can do that by uh, going to our email address, uh, which is the Nat History Cupboard at gmail.com. Um, you can also get in contact with us on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, and Instagram, all of the different social media platforms that we are on, uh, and where we post up all the different bits and pieces that we have going on as well. We also have uh, the fantastic T-Mail shop, uh, where we have all of our different merchandise going up all the time as well. Um, so it just leaves me to say, if you liked what you heard, remember you can leave a review on whatever podcasting service uh, you are listening to us on like subscribe all that good stuff smash a bell ring an icon poke a pike um throw a virtual sheep why don't they have that anymore i miss I'm, i miss the ability to throw virtual sheep but you can do that on whatever um service you're listening on to uh, to let us know that you like what we've got going on here but that just pretty much leaves me to say a big thank you uh, to you aaron yeah, very welcome Fantastic. And, well, a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. And cut. He's something of an editor himself. (laughs) 